This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Obviously, the big story today is the the death of uh, a member of the Musitano family. Uh, discussing the mob hit yesterday, Anthony Musitano, of course, was murdered in his driveway. Uh, police are continuing the investigation right now and looking for the uh, the shooter. What does this mean for the the Hamilton crime scene and its current state? Susan Claremont, award-winning uh, crime reporter for the Hamilton Spectator, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that and uh, the Musitano family themselves. Susan, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. As you mentioned in your piece in the spec today, Susan, uh, there isn't a cop, a lawyer, a crime reporter, a member of a competing crime family, or for that matter, maybe a lot of people in the business community that have not rubbed shoulders in one way or another with the members of the Musitano family in recent years. It's true. They are uh, legendary and notorious in Hamilton. Um, You know, a big family who has been a big part of our history and uh, their reach is is wide. Um, You know, this morning I'm hearing a lot of people uh, on Twitter and and sending me emails who are in mourning for the Musitanos. Um, You know, despite their criminal history, there are a lot of people in this community who went to school with members of the Musitano family or, you know, grew up with them as neighbors and uh, are, are feeling very sad today about the death of Angelo. And and this is one of the maybe great incongruities when it comes to talking about uh, people that are involved in, in organized crime. Because uh, we've heard it not just here in Hamilton, but in Toronto and certainly in New York with some of the crime families down there, haven't we, Susan, where... Where you know, there's this side of it. Obviously, there's the, the the crime side of it, and there's the things that these people do for a living. Yet, there's also a human side to this, and and people from neighborhoods that uh, that the family is known in would say, well, they're great people. They're nice. They help this. They help my aunt do this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's it's somewhat conflicting, really, when you hear stories from both sides. It really is. It's it's uh, it's an oddity, that's for sure. Um, but you know, as I was working on this this breaking story last night. Um, I talked to a number of people who said that in the last few years, Ange had really turned his life around. And, uh, um, you know, I know that, that there had been no um, real problems with Ange, no criminal problems with Ange for a number of years. Um, I spoke to one friend of his last night who uh, was very emotional, very, very sad about the news and said, um, and this was, you know, really helps to put things in perspective. He said, Ange leaves behind a wife and three small boys. And the friend said that, you know, those boys may not even ever remember their father. They're so young. Um, so you don't always think about um, people like Ange Musitano as being a family man, as being a dad. But uh, that story is is a a story unto itself as well. Uh, Some of the neighbors that were questioned and and talked uh, openly to the media after the the, the murder yesterday, uh, some of them didn't even know his last name was Musitano. They just just knew him as a quiet neighbor that kind of kept to themselves but seemed, you know, friendly enough, etc. And the the Musitanos, for the most part, were pretty much, uh, they've been under the radar for the last few years, haven't they? They really have. Um, you know, there was a time when I first started at The Spectator 20 years ago when uh, there was a hardly a day that went by that the Musitano name wasn't in our pages somewhere. Um, but it, certainly in the last five or six years, they have been uh, very low-key. And the last time that we wrote a story about them um, was a couple years ago when I wrote a piece about uh, uh, Angela's older brother, Pat Misitano, having his 
car set on fire in the driveway of his home. Um, and that's really the last time that they had been in our headlines. Well, they did make headlines, as you said, 20 years ago when they were implicated and eventually convicted uh, in the planning for the murder of uh, Johnny Papalia that happened on Railway Street, of course, uh, in Hamilton. Well, it was 20 years ago. Actually, just around this time of the year, wasn't it? It was, yeah. We're almost at the anniversary, I think. Um, Yeah, that was a huge story, not just in Hamilton, certainly in Hamilton, but across the country, because Johnny Pops Papalia, who's known as the Enforcer, uh, was the last of the the old school mafia bosses in Canada. Um, powerful man with a with a big, um, powerful family, and uh, Mr. Tannels were his rivals, of course. Um, and it was, you know, it had all the the makings of a Hollywood movie. It was uh, a hitman took out Johnny Pops, who was in his seventies by that time as he was um, walking along Railway Street where he um, ran his one of his businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually it was Pat and Ange Musitano who were picked up and charged with first-degree murder. At the time, Ange was just 21 years old. He was still living at home with, with his mom. You know, he was just a kid, and he was implicated in... Uh, one of the most violent and um, uh, notorious gangland hits in Canadian history. Well, actually, yeah, there were two of them uh, within a couple of hours of each other, weren't there? Two murders. That's right. It was uh, Johnny Pops was killed here, and his lieutenant, uh, Carmen Barilero, was was killed at his home in St. Catharines. Um, and and Pat were, were charged with both killings, but there was a plea deal eventually, and they pleaded to um, conspiracy to commit murder in the Barilero, uh, uh shooting. And both brothers spent, um, were sentenced to 10 years in prison. I think they served about six years of that. But and, and upon their release, you mentioned about the uh, story from a few years ago when Pat Musitano's car was uh, set afire. Uh, out on St. Clair Avenue in, in Hamilton's downtown area. But we hadn't heard much from Angelo Musitano. Uh, is, is there evidence from uh, the people you talked to over the last uh, few hours here, Susan, that in fact this guy did turn his life around and, and almost seemed to, to want to turn the page? Well, you know, it, this is kind of fascinating, but in the midst of, of all the chaos of, of reporting on this last night and things were moving very, very quickly, um, I learned uh, from a friend of, of Angie's that he had actually written his own story, um, part of a, a book that was put together by a Christian men's group that uh, Ange belonged to. And I was able to get a copy of that last night or, or see some excerpts from it. And Ange himself talked about, you know, his troubled past. Um, he talked about getting out of prison and still not being on the right path, but then meeting his wife and becoming a father and turning his life around, which he credited in his story to um, to finding God. And, and that was uh, underscored, I think, by the comments of some of the people that lived in the neighborhood in Waterdown, too, that uh, knew him as just a quiet person that kind of kept to themselves, uh, not rambunctious at all, and no evidence of anything else that was going on like this. That uh, notwithstanding, though, Susan, I mean, you've covered this for over 20 years now, the crime scene here. 
you know the Hamilton scene, obviously, because of the, the connections you've made and the people you've talked to. And we've talked with you and people like uh, Peter Edwards and Adrian Humphreys, our good friend, of course, who has written about crime uh, and organized crime for the longest time right now. And the, the common thread that seems to run through many of these stories is uh, the people that are involved in this have long memories. Is there any indication at all that uh, that what happened yesterday is in any way tied to what happened 20 years ago? Well, you know, I, I certainly don't know for sure, and police aren't saying much of anything at this point. But, yeah, it, it, absolutely it makes you wonder. Um, you know, the the murder of, of Johnny Pops and of Carmen Barolero are certainly the most significant crimes in the uh, Musitano brothers' history. Um, it does it does make me wonder whether this is somehow related to that 20 years ago. Um, true, these these people have, have long histories, um, revenge and um, uh, payback is part of the history of organized crime in Canada. Um, it, it certainly does make me wonder what this is all about. Well, and it raises so many different questions. Obviously, there's the human element, as you wrote about in your piece today in The Spectator, Susan, about about Angelo Musitano and his young family and, and obviously the, the impact that's going to have on them. But then there's the greater picture, I guess, that police are looking into right now, and that's, uh, okay, what does this mean? Who's responsible for this? Uh, is is this uh, a, an indicator that there's another uh, war about to happen here, not unlike what we've seen in the past between organized crime families? And And obviously, if that is the case... Who? Uh, you know, Johnny Papelli has been dead for 20 years right now. Uh, who was involved in this? I and mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a little mind-numbing to know that we could be heading down this road again. It's very true. You know, I um, uh, early after the, the murder yesterday, um, I started working my sources trying to find out what was going on after I got wind that, that this appeared to be a hit on Ange. And one of the first people I spoke to said, um, and the quote is in my story today, said, the war is on, meaning that, um, you know, in, in organized crime, in the mafia, in these circles, um, that this won't end here, uh, that there is um, almost certainly going to be attempts at retaliation, at payback, or, you know, there's questions about the safety of, of Pat Musitano now if someone was willing to take out his brother in his own driveway in a quiet, watered-down neighborhood, what does this mean for for Pat? Um, so, you know, homicide investigators who have, uh, I'm sure, um, been up all night and are working this hard uh, are probably wondering the same things and concerned about the same things, not just um, finding the killer but preventing something else from happening. And, and that could go in so many different directions, couldn't it? And I know you, you touch on that in the piece today, Susan, that uh, uh, obviously police will, will be following up on leads right now, but you don't know who the players are at this stage. As, as you talked about in the, in the column, I mean, you know, the Lupino family was once big here, the, the Papalia family was big here, the Musitano family. May, have we been lulled into a sense of, of, of maybe just thinking that, well, that was then, this is now, that stuff's long gone now. I mean, we hear about biker gangs and, and, and things of that nature happening, and that seems to be where organized crime is going. But that whole idea about you know, the mafia and everything, that's that's bygone stuff. Uh, this is a clear reminder that it's not bygone stuff. 
Well, it, it is. It's a bit of an eye-opener because you're right. I mean, we um, traditional organized crime, which is the term often used for, you know, the Italian mafia or the mob, um, hasn't really had um, a lot of limelight in Hamilton in, in recent years. It has in other places, uh, Montreal, for instance, Toronto, for instance. And my colleagues, as you mentioned, Adrian Humphreys and Peter Edwards have, have written whole books on, yeah. on that. But here in Hamilton, you know, after after the, the murder of Johnny Pops and, and uh, the pleas by, by Ange and Pat, there just hasn't been a, a lot of that that we've been aware of. Um, the attention has turned towards other kinds of organized crime, like biker gangs or, or street gangs. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to learn more about what actually is happening under the surface here. And, and therein lies, I, I think, the concern that, that we have, obviously, is uh, it's almost as if this is obviously an ongoing investigation, and police are pretty tight-lipped right now about what they're looking at and who they're looking at at this stage. But but do you get a sense, Susan, uh, from the people you talked to over the last 12, 15 hours, that there's this anticipation of the other shoe dropping here? Well, well what's going to happen next? There, there certainly is that concern. Um, you know, the war is on is, is not um, a, a comforting thought. So, uh, you know, I imagine that it will be all hands on deck for Hamilton police and, you know, um, the, as well as the homicide unit, the other units, you know, the intelligence unit, the guns and gangs unit, you know, there, there may be uh, a lot of other officers pulled into this. And, and as you found out in the investigation of, of obviously the Papalia death 20 years ago, and that's still fresh in a lot of people's minds, I guess, uh, there, there are sources, there are people that will talk. So you got to think at some point, uh, rather clandestine or not, that, uh, that police are going to get some indication as to where this is going and, and who may be responsible for this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they have leads on it already. Um, there are sort of the usual, the usual suspects. Um, in fact, one of my sources said that last night. Uh, so I would expect that Hamilton police uh, have a long list of people they want to talk to. There's a, a, a interesting aspect to this too, and uh, you know, when we've talked with you about this, and, and Peter and Adrian in the past, and, and other people like uh, James Duber and others that have written great li- uh, yeah. books about this, there's there's an allure to this that that it's 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 like watching a car accident. You know, you're not supposed to look, but we seem drawn to these sorts of things. Well, it's true. I mean, it's it's for one thing here in Hamilton, it is, you know, an inescapable part of our history, you know, going way back to Rocco Perry to, you know, um, to rum runners to, you know, it, it's just part of the fabric of, of our city. The Musitano family, this is this is generations of organized crime in that family, which is um, you know, has been well documented. Um, it, it's part of part of the history of our community. Um, so I think we are we are very fascinated by it, um, and because it's it's so secretive, because um, uh, Hollywood has glamorized it. You know, you can't think about this stuff without thinking about The Godfather. Um, you know, I think there is absolutely a fascination with uh, organized crime and especially um, gangland 
um, killings like this. Oh, I just had Trevor Cole on the program a couple of weeks ago, whose book, The Whiskey King, about uh, Rock and yep. Perry, just uh, was released a little while ago. It's a great read, by the way. Uh, and, and as you mentioned in the piece, I mean, the Musitano family is well-known in this community. Many people listening to this show right now went to school with some of them or, or maybe did business with them. Pat was a successful restaurateur in this town for a number yeah. of years as well and, and a very outgoing, gregarious individual. And, and people are kind of conflicted about their feelings about the family because of that. I, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, have, have brushed up against the Musitanos and um, you know, on my Twitter feed today, I'm seeing people say, yeah, I went to school with, with Ange, or, um, you know, they were my neighbor, or I'm just thinking about his children. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's it's heartening to know that Hamilton, um, uh, you know, recognizes that these are real people, that these are not Hollywood characters. Um, but at the same time, it is jarring, right? I mean, we, we know that... Um, uh, that there are some members of the Musitano family who have deep criminal pasts. Um, and then there are also Musitanos who have no criminal histories at all, but they wear that name. And uh, you can imagine any time uh, the Musitano name came up in, in Hamilton, how it uh, uh, stops people's, people in their tracks, right? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Some time ago, we told you about the proposed deal with Bedrock Industries to take over Stelco here in Hamilton, and well, and Lake Erie for that matter as well. And uh, it's all before the courts. There are negotiations that are ongoing. And uh, what we know of the deal, and we talked about extensively on the program here, it looked on the surface as if it was going to be a win-win situation. But part of it is hinging on the uh, this land sale of the, the lands that Stelco isn't going to need anymore, that they still own down there. And uh, that's supposed to help with the pension fund. It's supposed to help with the back taxes for the city of Hamilton, too. Well, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and uh, the city manager and a number of other folks are rather skeptical below whether or not this is actually going to work as to whether or not they're actually going to find a buyer for this. I mean, if, if they can't sell the land, you don't raise the revenue. So what are the implications? Well, let's uh, bring a couple of folks in that have uh, uh, vested interest in what's going on here. Well, we all do because we're taxpayers. If uh, they don't get the money from Stelco... Uh, guess who has to make up the shortfall? Yeah. Marvin Ryder joins us, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University to talk about this. Good morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Is uh, It looks as if all of a sudden uh, people are getting a little uh, skittish about this whole thing, as, as if it's not going to work. What, what's your read on this? Yes. So a few moments ago you characterized the deal as win-win. I guess it's, I would phrase it's more like win and not lose so much, maybe, as opposed to win-win. Let me try to explain. Uh, on the topic of pensions specifically, the last time we had an accounting of the pension fund, there was an actuarial shortfall of $800 million. This is a multi-billion dollar pension fund, but if everyone lives as long as they're supposed to live and collect what they're supposed to collect, there's a shortfall of around $800 million. Bedrock, in taking over Stelco, said, we don't want to be on the hook for that. We didn't cause this problem. We don't want to have to pay for the problem. We need to find an innovative solution. So working with the province, the idea came up of what's called a land trust. So all of the land that Stelco sits on, both here in Hamilton and in Haldeman, would get owned by the province, a land trust operated by the province. Bedrock would lease back just that part of the land that it needs. So, for instance, here in Hamilton, Stelco sits on roughly 325 
acres of property. I think it's acres, not hectares of property. And of that, they only need about 100, 120 acres. So they would lease that back and they would pay the taxes on that portion through their lease payment. But that would give the land trust roughly 200 acres that it could clean up and then sell. And the idea is, although this doesn't happen immediately, it would take two or three years, is that in selling the land, any money they made on selling the land would go back into the pension fund. Now, I did a rough calculation. Let's suppose they could clean up the land to a reasonable standard for commercial use, not for uh, residential use, but for commercial use. The standard's different, lower for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose they could sell it for a million dollars an acre, <clears throat> which isn't all that crazy. That's kind of in the right ballpark for industrial land. But that gets you $200 million. It does not close the whole pension shortfall. So where I think people are concerned is, well, what's the plan for the remaining $600 million on one hand? And B, even if we could get the land clean, who's going to buy it? As we know here in Hamilton, we have uh, industrial parks where there's land set aside. And yes, we've had Canada Bread move in. We've had a Tim Hortons plant move in. We've had Maple Leaf Foods move in. But those are more like one every couple of years. Uh, you know, do we actually have somebody who's ready to buy this land? And again, what the mayor and I think the city manager are concerned about is if we did a fire sale, in other words, just said, well, we'll sell to whoever wants to buy it, maybe what would spring up on the Stelco land is warehouses. That's not the world's worst use for the land. It's better than having it sit empty, but it doesn't create a lot of jobs. So for this land trust to really fulfill all of its promise, we need the land to be sold to someone who's who's manufacturing something, a, a more industrial producer who could bring hundreds of jobs back to the site. That's good for the, the housing and the tax base and employment issues, but also would get the city a much bigger revenue stream on the tax side of it. And there's just this concern, is are, are we really being realistic about what these lands can do? Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, it's the old uh, mantra from real estate, isn't it, uh, Marvin? You know, willing seller, willing buyer. Obviously, if this all comes to fruition, there'll be a willing seller here, but who's kicking the tires? I mean, we all know about the real estate boom that's happening here, but that's residential. Yes. Uh, I don't think I've heard of any indication at all that it's happening with commercial or industrial. Now, Hamilton does have a lot of brownfield land, and it is working to put that land back into circulation in any number of ways. And if you were to talk to, uh, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name, Glenn, Glenn uh, Norton, Glenn I think Norton, it is. yeah. Uh, he would tell you that they've been very successful on on bringing a lot of brownfield redevelopment back. But it's not a slam dunk. So I think, why why are people even pausing at this point? Well, a number of things are aligning on the bedrock deal. The province has gotten behind this land trust, and they seem to be happy on their interests. Last week, we had a vote of the unsecured creditors, and Bill, I think this is a headline that no one's really talked about. Amazingly, 96% of the unsecured creditors agreed to the offer that was in front of them. What was that offer? Ten cents on the dollar. Ouch. So if you're owed a million dollars, you're going to get 100000 but you're going to have to write off 900000 But they agreed to this, 96%. The um, uh, salaried workers and the uh, salaried pensioners, they've agreed to the deal. U.S. Steel in the United States has agreed to the deal. And another thing that came out yesterday in court is that while U.S. Steel is going to be fully repaid the secured debt that is owed, which is roughly you know, $160, $170 million, it is not getting repaid any of the unsecured debt which it is owed, which is nearly $2 billion. Apparently, U.S. Steel is going to walk away from that and not get even a dime on that money. So that's all coming together. We've got two pieces left to the puzzle. That's the deal with the workers down at Nanticoke, the Lake Erie Works, 
and a deal with the Hamilton workers. Lake Erie Works is in the situation that it doesn't really have that much of an unfunded pension obligation because its workers are relatively young and there's not that many that are retired. Uh, so, you know, that it should be relatively easy to strike a deal there. It's in Hamilton where we have a situation of, of maybe roughly 1,000 people working at Stelco today here in Hamilton, but nearly 15,000 retirees. And that's why this issue around the pension fund is so critical to the um, to the workers here locally. And if you don't get a deal with the workers locally, maybe the whole thing falls apart. Well, that that is the deal breaker, isn't it? Because didn't the court suggest that the, this bedrock deal can't happen until they, they come and make their peace with the unions? And uh, the unions... Uh, we'll talk with Gary Howe about this in a little bit here, but I mean the unions are essentially saying uh, no deal unless you can do something about the pension fund. Well, it looks like that just can't happen. The, the math just doesn't seem to work here. Yeah, I'm going to change your quote ever so slightly there, Bill. It's not do something about the pension fund, but make the pension fund a whole. Yeah. The land trust does something about the pension fund. It's possible that $200 million of $800 million can be generated that way. That's 25%. That's, that's doing something. As well, Bedrock has agreed to make some payments over the first five years. In total, less than $100 million. I think they add up to about $80, $80 million. So let's look at the glass half full. That's $280 million towards an $800 million shortfall. But the union is correct at looking at the glass half empty and saying, well, that's great. Where do we get the other $520 million? There are some calculations that suggest that if the pension fund is well invested and can generate a 10% compound rate of return on its money invested, it will clear the shortfall within a decade. But that was a very big if. If you can get 10% compounded, you and I can't, the average investor can't, it would be a real challenge for somebody. And I think this is, this is the concern. Now, one last on, uh, uh, aspect on this, the court has said, yes, it's contingent, you've got to have a deal. I am curious, though, that if the court got a deal with everybody but the, uh, the workers here in Hamilton, and if the workers here in Hamilton were seen as not really negotiating, just drawing a line in the sand, would the court order something? You know, if they've got every other piece of this puzzle solved but the one, would the court order something like, say, binding arbitration, where you put your best deal forward, you put your best deal forward, somebody will pick between them, and then off we will go. I, I just don't know, but this has been going on for nearly three years, and I know the court wants to wind this up one way or the other. All right, I want you to do a little crystal ball gazing for us, yep. if you could, Marvin, on, on two fronts. First of all, and I, I know it's, it's sometimes a fool's game to start to predict markets, but do you see a viable future for that return on investment that they're expecting to get on this? And secondly, I guess, when you come into something like this, uh, let's let's talk about maybe one of the main factors in this whole issue: the price of steel itself. Because I mean, if that starts to to bottom out again, like it did some time ago, all bets are off. Right. Well, let me deal with your, your first one. Sure. Can you can you generate this kind of return and can make the pension fund whole? The answer is yes. You know, we've already seen this with other pension funds, and even here locally, here at McMaster, we have a pension fund and an endowment fund. All that money gets left to the university to pay for scholarships and what have you. All of that's what's called an endowment fund, and it suffered dramatically after 2008-9. But now, here, roughly a decade later, eight years later. Uh, they're almost back to full. 
not because we've thrown a lot of additional cash into the funds, but they've been very carefully invested. Uh, Hospital of Ontario pension plan, it was in the news, but before we get to the news, it is another one that was underwater, and again, through careful investing, back to full. We've seen this with the teacher's pension fund, even the Canada pension plan. All of those funds, through careful investing, have been able to, to fill themselves up. It actually is a bit of a quandary to me why the um, Stelco pension fund hasn't done a better job. It's been stuck at an $800 million shortfall for about three years in a row. My gut feeling is I would be changing the investment managers. There's money to be made now. The markets have been re- returning. The American market's been growing. If, if it's properly invested, yes, I think you can get 9 or 10%. We saw last week with the Hospital of Ontario Pension Plan helping to bail out home capital, which is its own story onto itself, but they were able to advance them $2 billion, bill at a 22% rate. Wow, you know, if I've, if I've got those kinds of opportunities as a pension fund manager, I'm interested. So I, I think it's possible to do. Your second question, though, is the bigger question. Uh, in the monitor's report that was filed yesterday in court, he had a graph showing the price of steel over just the last three years. And, Bill, it looks like a heartbeat the way it moves. At the highest, it was $700 a ton. At the lowest, 459 Right now, it's at roughly $650 a ton. That's why, for the first quarter of this year, Stelco made money. Uh, it was a profitable company. And I know what all the union members are going to say is, that, see, see, look at that quarter. You just extend that forward. We've got a healthy company. We don't need to talk about a bailout. But it is just one quarter, three months. And if you look at that graph, I would hate to try to predict what the price of steel is going to be a year from now. It could be 750 a ton. It could be 450 a ton. And that's the problem with this business. So much of it is tied into fixed costs. It really depends on what you can sell it for. And you're not in control of that. Other forces drive the price of steel. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. So how does the union respond to this, this latest event, and, of course, what's going to be happening and going forward? Gary Howe is the president of United Steelworkers Local 1005 here in Hamilton, and he's with us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Gary. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Uh, There's a business case. There's the pension issue here. There's so much going on right now. And it's now some skepticism you're hearing from the city, uh, Gary, from Mayor Eisenberger and others, that they're not sure this is such a great deal for the city or for the the pensioners. What's your read on this? Well... Bill, nothing's really changed in the sense of, of, of what's going to happen with the land or people's view on it. I think, you know, if you, if you just look at um, how long it's going to take to develop ideas on the land, I think that's what people's concerns are. There's no doubt that going down the road, things are going to happen on the lands, on the Stelco lands, and people are going to make money off those lands, and there's going to be jobs. You know, it's just a matter of uh, how long does that take to, for that to happen? And, you know, like who's going to make the money? Because what, what, you know, a lot of people are saying is, is, is it's the pensioners that developed that place and made, built the place that should make the money along with the city. So I think the city's concerns are, and we've met with them, you know, like I think everyone wants to work towards a plan um, that's best for us and best for the city. Um, and the the view is you know over a short time and and five years really isn't a long time we've been in bankruptcy almost three years right so if people mm-hmm. can keep that in mind to develop a, a, to have a good land plan that might take 10 20 years um to get things in place and there are things you can do in the short term 
um, to try to, you know, make as much money as you can off the land. But I think, you know, like the city is interested in, in doing the right thing. And, you know, obviously we want to do what the right thing is for our, you know, our members, both past and present, right? Because we view, and you've heard me say it before, that there's availability for a lot more than 500 jobs uh, down in the land that, you know, where Stelco was. Marvin Ryder just mentioned a few minutes ago about how since this whole thing started, uh, Gary, that a number of other pension funds that were also adversely affected uh, back in the recession have started to gain ground. As a matter of fact, some of them are whole again now. Uh, the Stelco pension, not so much. Is there a concern about the way the fund is being managed right now? Yeah, actually, I heard what Marvin said. I was on the line when, when he oh, good. said it. And, and, the, and the difference is that, you know, and, and I... I'm fortunate because I'm in a position I can see these things, mm -hmm. that a lot of people were forced to retire. They feel they were forced to retire when U.S. Steel bought us and shut, shut us down. So you had a lot of people that were in their early 50s that retired that weren't ready to retire. So when the actuarials look and do their actuarial reports, that puts a huge strain on your pension plan and on the uh, what's called the unfunded liability for the solvency because you had these people retire where normally you know they would have worked till their 59 60 that would be the the what the norm was um and and that's added a lot of strain see we have well, almost 2000 people that are under 65 that are retired and that's you know like quite high the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.